All right, good morning, everybody. If you want to turn your Bibles to Job chapters 2 and 3, that's where we'll be this morning, Job 2 and 3. Then we'll pray and we'll get started here. Lord, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to dive into it. We pray your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning and that we'd be open to everything you have for us. As Job begins to complain and gets attacked in several other ways, um, knowing how this book ends and knowing how you respond to him, Lord, I pray that we would learn um, what to do and what not to do today when we have ourselves in trials or we come across difficult times in our lives. God, we want to be um, better. We want to respond appropriately to know our place and to understand who you are and, um, and to carry our cross, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. That's really what we're seeing here, I believe, in chapters 2 and 3 is Job carrying his cross. So that's a, a New Testament scripture that is often difficult to explain to people when Jesus says, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. What does that exactly mean? Well, it means to be prepared to die or reckon yourself dead already. To consider your life spent, even though it hasn't actually been spent yet, consider it spent so that when it's getting spent, you're not surprised by it. You're prepared for it. You've set yourself up for this. Job is not prepared for this. Um, Job is a good man. He is a man that's been nominated by the Lord to uh, prove a point, to let Satan attack him in several different ways, um, to show that he will not curse God in the process. Many people die in the process of proving Job's faithfulness to the Lord and allegiance to God. And um, it's a difficult book, but one of, like I said last week, one of the most impactful books in my Christian walk, I learned a lot. And so when I go through this, and if you've never read Job before, you don't know what happens in chapter 38, 39, 40, 41, when God answers Job. And so I don't normally do this, but after today's teaching, go read, starting in verse 30 or chapter 38 on so that you can read the rest of Job in light of that, in light of God's response, because it isn't exactly what you would think from the Lord. Um, God holds Job accountable for everything he says here today. He holds him accountable to it. He doesn't curse God, but he certainly questions God's motives, certainly questions God's plan for his life, to the point where Job actually states today, that he would prefer that he not have lived or been born, which is quite a statement, first of all. Um, it shows the, the depth of despair that he's in, the depression that he's in. Um, but God doesn't excuse that. With all the things going through Job's life right now and all the difficulties he's going to have, God doesn't excuse him. He doesn't get a get-out-of-jail-free card just because he feels like he's being wronged. That's important. And so as we go through two and three, we learn to, I think, I did anyway, grow up a little bit, to be a little more mature, to be a little more even. One of the qualifications of anybody that wants to be in leadership or wants to minister God to this dying world is they need to be even. Whether they're on top of a mountain, they're not giddy to the point where they're ridiculous, or whether they're down in the valley of death, they're not so despairing that they can't help anybody, that they're paralyzed with it. They're even. 
They learn how to live with an abundance without acting like an arrogant fool. But they also learn how to live without, without complaining and grumbling. There's an evenness that God calls us to as Christians. Every one of us is called to this, to be even in our walk with the Lord. And I think that's the key is carrying your cross. You've reconciled yourself dead. You've reconciled yourself buried with Christ. That's what baptism is all about, risen to new life in the Lord. It's you're living your resurrected life in heaven, but temporarily assigned to this earth until you get to be at home with him. So what happens here isn't nearly as important as the eternity that you've set your heart and mind upon. In verse 1 of chapter 2, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it, the exact same statement that was made in chapter 1 last week. Chapter 1, he was given permission to touch all that Job had, and he did. Satan ruined and killed everybody in his life except for his wife and his Good buddies that are going to show up here shortly. But took away all of his children, all of his property, all of his wealth. But that's it, which is a lot. But it didn't work. He didn't curse God. He didn't walk away from the Lord. And so Satan lost that round. Well, he's back now. And God is saying, how'd it go, basically, down there? Where have you been? Well, I've been doing the same thing. I'm walking to and fro. And we know from Scripture that he walks to and fro like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may desire. Please never, ever forget that. Our enemy, the devil, is real, and he is out there to kill and destroy. Always, always, always. He's never our friend. The world would have us believe it's like a Budweiser commercial where the Satan's in charge, and that's where all the partiers are, and that's where all the good times are, and all the losers, and all the goody-goodies are up in heaven. You don't want to be there. You want to be down here with us. That is not how it is. That's Satan's deception. It's not what the Scripture tells us. Satan is not in charge of hell. He doesn't have a book. He's not standing at a podium. He's not ushering people into the gates of hell. He's in torment. He's in chains. And he will be there, and we will look upon him and ask ourselves, is this the one that troubled the whole earth? He's a nobody. And those who follow him and do his will and accept his deception and reject God's truth will find themselves right beside him. Not because that's where God wants them, but because that's where they've chosen to be. This place, hell, was created for the angels. And anybody that wants to follow Satan, the fallen angels, and anybody that wants to follow Satan, guess what? You you get to go there. And that's the point. Satan goes to and fro across the earth, and he is looking to see whom he can devour. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 7, 8, and 9, describes the moment where Satan's not able to walk to and fro on the earth. He's not able to enter into heaven and present himself like he is here. Some people are bothered by this. It, it's why does he have that kind of uh, access to heaven? Well, it's temporary. And in chapter 12 of Revelation describes the moment, and you can read the whole chapter. I didn't want to do that to you today, but 
Verses 7, 8, and 9 describe the moment where he's no longer able to do that. It's in the great tribulation period, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. So there's a clue to us as to what's going on. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. It goes on to describe this dragon, well, actually previous to this, in the first uh, six verses, it describes um, that he fell, this dragon fell, and he grew, uh, drew a third of the stars with him. And so some people say, well, we don't really know what that means. Well, if you read it in context, the very next verses describe exactly what that means. This dragon is Satan, and it says his angels go with him. So that's a third of the angels. We're not sure how it works up there, but our guess is we've got Michael, we've got Gabriel, and then you've got Lucifer. Those are our three department heads up there. Um, Gabriel's the announcer. Michael's the, he's the muscle up there, it seems like. And then you had Lucifer, who's the worship angel as the scriptures describe him that way. Well, when Satan decides to find himself equal to God, or at least try to make himself equal to God, he draws a third, whoever he's in charge of, apparently follow him. And that's where demons come from. If you didn't know that, it's important to get this doctrine down and understand that this is what scripture teaches. The fallen angels are demons. They're not a different breed or anything. They're just angels that all followed Satan. So that's where they come from. At any whatever, they're gone now. At this point in chapter 12 of Revelation, they get cast out. You don't get to present yourself. You don't get to walk up here. And that's when all hell breaks loose on earth, when he realizes his time is short, and you can read the rest of Revelation to see what takes place after this. Boy, he starts making everybody's life more miserable than it's ever been before because he knows he's only got a little bit of time to take as many of us with him as possible. And he gets busy. He gets very busy. So after he presents himself and says what he's been doing, the Lord continues the conversation with him from last week. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but... Uh, stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. You can't kill him. God doesn't just say, Go out and kill everybody he thinks is going to curse me. Well, that's not going to prove a point. That just. You can touch him, you can touch his person, but you can't take his life. I'm not giving you that permission. In this section, God points out to Satan that he hasn't lost his integrity. Integrity, integrity. I let, drive that home into your brain today. Job has something that he's using that's coming, and the source is himself. He still walks with God. He has a choice. He doesn't have to walk with God anymore. He, he can or he can't. It's up to him whether he does this or not. He stays in his integrity and he walks with the Lord. He stays with God, even though all has been taken away from him. It's a very important thing to understand. I have responsibilities to walk with God. God calls upon us to have integrity towards him, to have faith in him. We're expected to do that. That's not some supernatural, miraculous thing that just happens to people. That's something we choose to exercise in our life. 
I choose not to curse God. I choose not to count, put him at fault. I choose not to be at odds with him. He's my father. He's done everything for me. I love him. I don't know what this is all about. Doesn't make any difference. I know that he's for me. He's not against me. And I rehearse those scriptures in my mind, and I go over those things and hold on to those things and stay within my integrity towards the Lord. Job does a wonderful job here. God says he didn't do it, did he? No, no. But that's because we haven't touched him yet, Satan says. Let's touch him now. I mean, that's the, that's the most basic instinct everybody has, self-preservation. If we get a hold of him, if I can get a hold of him, I know I can get him to curse you. So touch him, Lord. That was Satan's suggestion. You touch him, God. And that's just a temptation. He's a slick guy. He doesn't say, let me touch him. He says, God, go ahead. I want to see you. You touch him, and I bet he curses you. And God's like, no, 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 I'm not touching him. He's, he's in your hands. You can do with you. You're going to get all the credit for this. That's Satan doing this to you. Not me. Now, some say, well, that's kind of dodging responsibility. I mean, you are the one that allowed him to do it. Certainly, it's your responsibility. It isn't. From the very beginning, we've learned that God has a hedge of protection around Job, which isn't required by God. We brought sin into this world. We're the ones that decided to follow Satan. We're the ones that took the fruit off the tree and decided to eat and have the knowledge of good and evil. It's our responsibility to deal with it now. The very fact that God has a hedge of protection, and that's important because that'll come up here, Job's actually going to say later on in chapter 3, I've been hedged in by the Lord. He sees it the exact opposite. He was hedged in before with a protective hedge. In chapter 3, he's going to say, I'm just hedged in here. I'm stuck. God's got me cornered. That's not what's happened. No, I'm not going to touch him, but he's in your hand to touch him. You can do it. I've removed the barrier that you said was keeping him in love with me. I'm saying I don't need to have that around him for him to still love me and to worship me. You say he will. Here it is. I'll take it away. We are not owed a hedge of protection. One of the key things I learned as a Christian, I am not owed anything. I didn't deserve the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, I haven't earned any of that stuff. He owes me no responsibility. I owe him everything. Without Jesus Christ, without the cross, I owe him my entire life. He created me. He made me. That's enough for me to worship him the rest of my life and should have been obedient to him my whole life. The very fact that I wasn't obedient to him and he stepped down into this world to give me a way back to him, even though I had no reason to walk away from him, I did. When I grasp that, when we grasp that as Christians, we don't, it's not poor me anymore. Why me? How come this happens to me? What is going on with me? God does not owe us a hedge, a protective barrier. So when he removes this, when he allows this to be taken up, when he says, no, now you can touch his person if you want to, and he still won't do it, I want to read to you Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 through 39. Jesus says, I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. 
He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That's why I focused on that scripture this morning, to take up your cross and to follow him. That's something you do in your mind. That's something you prepare yourself for. That's something you settle now, in peacetime, before you're attacked. You settle these things now. Um, I don't know that this is good advice or bad advice. I know that this is what I do, so I'll just let you know what I've done and do. But I work things out with God before they happen. I just do. That's how my mind works. I'm sure you do the same thing. Maybe you play out different things in your heart and in your mind. What if this would happen? What if that would happen? And I, and I have these conversations with the Lord. It's on my time, you know. I don't try to do it in front of everybody. Uh, but when I have my quiet time, I say, hey, what would I do if JC died? What would I do if Bo died? And God, how would I deal with that? Because right now I think I'd be kind of, and I, I work through the entire scenario. I think I'd be upset. I mean, of course I'd be mourning, but I, I don't know that I wouldn't be mad at you. Can, I need help with this because why would I be mad at you? And I work these things out and I talk with him about it. And I read his word and I look at the examples and I begin to think about eternity and I think about, okay, now why am I upset? Well, I'm upset because I expected to have more life with him and I expected to die before him because I'm older than he is and I expected him to live a long life. But I mean, really, everybody dies, whether we die in the right order or not really makes no difference. I mean, why am I concerned about that if this is truly the beginning, and that is eternity with God. What, what difference does it make if he gets there before I do? Isn't that what we all want? So I work all these things out in my head. Now, I don't know that I'm fully prepared for it, but it certainly won't be a surprise to me, and it won't be the first time I've thought about it if it would ever happen to my family. I take up my cross, and I kind of nail myself to it, in a sense. That isn't mine. He's the son. I mean, I tell everybody I'm just a custodian of my son, JC, or I'm a a keeper of my daughter, Mariah. They're his. They've always been his. I always tell people they're his, and I'm just doing the best I can with them. And I'm, I'm, but if he wants to take them home to be with him sooner, what am I upset about? And is it selfishness? And I work all the way through it until I get to the point where, oh, that's why I'm mad because of me. Because I don't get what I wanted, and it didn't go like I thought it would go. Oh. And then I start apologizing, and it hasn't even happened yet. You know, sorry about that, God. Thank you for working that out with me. You know, now whether that all plays out like it needs to, if that should ever happen to me, I don't know. Don't hold me to this conversation right now. I'm just saying I do these things. I work these things out. I think we need to work out our salvation in many different ways. That I think having conversations with God beforehand is so. So important. I don't think that Job has, and we'll see that in chapter 3. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, just six chapters later, Jesus brings it up again. He says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. In other words, your life is not your own. Your stuff is not your own. The people in your life are not your own. I can give. I can take away. You're giving me permission. I'm your Lord. I'm your King. I'm your Savior. I love you. You know that about me. Deny yourself. 
Take up your cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is calling upon them to get this reconciled in their mind now. They're not being persecuted for their faith yet. He's not even gone to the cross yet. He hasn't ascended. He's not even resurrected. None of these things have taken place yet. And yet he's calling them, you need to start taking up your cross now. You need to start reckoning yourself dead, living your life not only for, not for yourself, but for me. You need to be thinking that way. And he does that because he's a good teacher, and he's a good master, and he's a good king, and he's a good Lord. You're going to need to get this settled in your mind because things are going to come your way. And if you're surprised and shocked by them, you may not handle it well. You may not still be with me, walking with me at the end of this. Many, many people walk away from the Lord in the New Testament because of the cares of life, because something happened or whatever, and they just know, and they're done. I don't want that to happen to me. I know that I'm weak. God tells me that I'm weak. He knows my propensity to walk away from him and to be frustrated and to be selfish. And I, I know all those things about myself. And so he gives me all the tools I need to prepare for that. You need to start trusting me more now. So have you touched his body yet? Go ahead. Just don't kill him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a pot shard with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall, I, shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Wow. Of all, you know, we make jokes about this. God killed everybody in his family but his wife because what a blessing she's become in his life, you know. And as I'm reading this, I'm like, this woman reminds me of Jenny. Just like my wife, always complaining. She is always looking out for her best interests and not mine. She's never there to support me. She can't wait to get rid of the kids so she can seek her own. She doesn't have a walk with the Lord. I say that because although not everybody appreciates sarcasm, sometimes that's a good way to get a point across. She is left in his life for a reason because she's a pain. This wife is a pain. This wife is looking at her husband. Now, I understand she's going through the same grief he is, and she is not handling it well, obviously. She is obviously not walking with the Lord at this point and doesn't know why her husband still is because she has written God off in the fact that she has lost all of her children, and I understand that she's grieving. But she is not there for her husband to help him, to be alongside of him, to encourage him. Um, she doesn't have the boils. He does. Um, I mean, I, I mean, it's marriage counseling 101. Your job, 
your mission by God as a wife is to encourage and support your husband. And men, your job as a husband, your mission by God is to support your wife and encourage her. And many people misunderstand that calling of God, as to, as to, and they read it. And I believe they really believe this in their heart. Well, when he starts doing that, I'll start doing mine. Well, that's a, that's a brilliant idea. I mean, what could possibly go wrong if both of you sit there with your arms crossed and hate each other and don't support each other in your marriage? I'm sure it'll work out. You just made it twice as bad as it needs to be by not doing your part. You can do nothing about the other person. It is completely their call, their responsibility to answer God's mission for their life and to do what God's called them to do. Whether they do it or not does not alleviate you of your responsibility to do what you're called to do. I support my wife if she doesn't support me, and she supports me if I don't support her. That's not how it works. I don't know where we got that idea. Well, I know we get it from the world. But God has called us to be Christians first, and in our marriage, we're called to be Christian people in our marriage. And if your husband or your wife is a mission field, so they're a mission field. Minister to them like you would a homeless person on the street. Take care of them like you would some anybody that's poor in your life that does not have the Lord. Serve them. Be the love of Christ to them. Be there for them all the time. And the only reason we don't do that is because we think we deserve or expect more. My life should be more than this. I deserve better. And brings us all the way back to what we were talking about with Job. No, you don't. When you became a Christian, you picked up your cross and you followed the Lord. Because your mind is set on eternity. It doesn't really matter what happens here. Your job here, your mission here on earth is to be like Christ to those around you. It could be someone very close to you like your spouse. We're called to that. Don't you curse God and die, she says. No, I'm not going to do that. In Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 12, who can find a virtuous wife? Her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. And that's the same for men, too. You're called to love your wife like Christ loves the church, sacrificially, washing feet, taking care of her, teaching her. Teaching her the word of God is what I mean, and and sharing with her, being spiritually a leader in your home so that she can trust in what you're saying and that you're looking out for her best interest and the family's best interest and that you're there to provide for them and you understand your responsibility and you're calling upon God in your life. And I'm telling you, when you guys do that, she'll do this in Proverbs 31. And if she doesn't, it doesn't matter. You still do what you're called to do. And wives, I'm telling you, you do this Proverbs 31, 10 through 12, you take yourself out of the equation in the sense that, okay, so I've lost my entire family and all my wealth. I've lost my health. If you aren't that third thing that comes into your husband's life to bring him down, what a blessing you are. To not be the first horrible counselor in your husband's wife to say, you know what, just give up. There's a lot going on here. And again, read chapters 38, 39, 40, 41, so you can see God's response to this. But he's going to be held accountable. She's going to be held accountable. And now we've got 
Job's three friends, here they come. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all his adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Delphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head towards heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Now, based off the next few chapters, it probably would have been better that they don't open their mouths and they would stay in this position, but they don't. They find words only after Job opens his mouth. So for now, they're going to sit there and just be with him in his mourning, which is fine, but they did go with the intent to encourage him. The problem is they don't have a very good, solid, sound relationship with God to give them the right kind of encouragement that he needs. The test that's being done is for Job to curse God and to walk away from him The job of the encourager is to come along and point them that God is good, God is faithful, God loves you, to remind them of the things that they know, but to strengthen that area that is being attacked right now. That is not what they do. After this, Job opened his mouth in chapter 3 and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said, A male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. Oh, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout come into it. May those... uh, Curse it who cursed the day. Those who are ready to arouse Leviathan, now God is listening. Chapter 41, God mentions this very subject and goes into it. You talked about Leviathan? Let's talk about Leviathan. Anyway, he brings it up. So God is very present right now as Job is saying all these things. I wish I was never born. Don't sing happy birthday to me on my day. Don't even mark it off on your calendar. All of my enemies who cursed the day that I was born, keep going with that. I'm with you on this. I wish I wasn't born either. We don't have that right. We don't have that authority. We don't have that. That's not the place of a believer to say those things about the day God created us and brought us into this world. Every one of us was born for a purpose and a reason. Now, Job is not happy with the purpose for which he's born. He's not happy what he's going through right now. He's not enjoying the life God has given him and the things that he's brought into his life to live through. He's not happy with it. And so he's saying, I would rather have been dead and never created than to have to go through what I'm going through right now. This is his first mistake. Now, he's not cursing God. He's coming very close to it by cursing what God has done, what God has made. Because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb nor hide sorrow from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came to the womb? Why did the knees receive me or why the breast that I should nurse? 
For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep and I would have been at rest. This is where a lot of churches get the doctrine of soul sleeping. They get it from Job's comments right here. Please understand, this is accurate scripture. This is what Job said, but Job is speaking without knowledge. God is going to call him on this later. He says, where were you when I created the earth? How do you know that this is how it works? Did I reveal to you the gates of heaven? Did I show you how all this works up here? You're just speaking out of your own head. This isn't true. Nothing that Job is saying right here is accurate. He's just saying what he thinks. Oh, we get into trouble that way. We begin to just say, well, I, I think this, and I think this is how it is, and this is what it must be like up in heaven. I just, it would have been better. I'd be asleep right now. No, you wouldn't be, you know. No, that's not true. He's asking the question that I think everybody asks, why? Why am I born? Why am I here? And the answer to that question is going to define your life for you. And as Christians, we need to continually ask ourselves that, why are you here? Why are you born? Is it truly for you to live for yourself, or is it to live for God? If it's to live for yourself, then you have every right to feel all these feelings that Job is feeling and to say all the things Job is saying because you deserve more, you deserve better, you're owed. If you believe that you're here to live for God, if you were born to bring God glory, if you truly are and you believe his word that you are a worshiper and those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth, and that's what you're called to do in adversity and in abundance or in peace, it's going to define your life. I, I do not understand atheists. I do not understand evolutionists. I don't get it. If that's true, and there is no God, and we were birthed from whatever, you don't know the source because you just know, you just pick a starting point, you think it starts here, even though you don't know where matter came from, you don't know how the laws of physics came into being and what happened before the laws of physics. You don't know any of those things about the universe, but you just come to an assumption, you just start here. We're just going to start with what we know. If that's true, and you were just evolved, and there is no God, why have you not killed yourself yet? What is the point? Why do you live? What, what causes you to get up, up in the morning and pushes you forward? If, if, so what if you had 100 years of absolute bliss in sin? You're going to die and become nothing. It's like you never mattered. The sun, it's burning out. And if we don't jump to another planet within the next few million years as a species or as an evolved species, because if there's evolution, we're certainly not done yet. You're just an ape at this point moving from the next level up, whatever that next level is, and they're going to make fun of you and just put you in the chart here as human beings. If we don't get to the next planet for that star that's a little more new and puts off a little more heat and has the right environment for us, well, then you can live for I don't know how much longer. Until that star burns out, until that star burns out, well, okay, well, if you take that across, I mean, there's a lot of stars. I understand there's a lot of galaxies. It's huge. It's big. But eventually, I mean, if we just jump ahead, everything burns out, right? We just do what? It just turns to blackness and nothingness. Collapses upon itself. Rebirths itself. But how many times has it done that? Or when did it start? I mean, honestly, if you follow it to its logical conclusion, what is the purpose and why are you here? What's the point? Or there is a God 
who spoke everything into his exist into existence with in seven days, because what difference does it make whether it took all that time or not? If it, why can't he just speak it into existence in seven days? And you were created for his good purpose, and everything came from him, and he's allowed us to learn to love him here before we get to eternity. I mean, now I have purpose, now I have a reason, now there's joy, there's hope. Job is acting like and speaking like someone who says, what's the point? Why am I even here? Job, you're here to prove a point. You're here to be used by God. However, you're going to get an attorney with him. You're going to live with him forever. You're going to have all these. But for the time that I've got you here on earth, I'm going to use you in this way because there's a lot of people that need to learn to love me, and I'm going to use your life to do that. They're going to see this. They're going to hear me. We're going to document your life, all the words that you share, and we're going to document my response, and people are going to read it. In 2021, Calvary Chapel Maryville is going to read it, and they're going to learn a little bit more about me. Is that okay if I use your life that way, Job? Well, yeah, now that you put it that way. But in the depth of his despair and his darkness, he has a hard time seeing the eternal, seeing God's purpose for it. And that's why I've settled in my heart that I have decided and purposed in my heart, I don't need to understand why these things happen in my life. If he wants to share with me, great. If he doesn't, I will praise the Lord. I know who he is. I'm not confused about my God. I'm not confused as his motives and what he thinks of me, what he thinks of the people. I know that he demonstrated his love for me, that he came down and died on the cross for our sins. He didn't have to do that. But his love for us was so great that he did that. I don't doubt anything that happens in my life. Because I know who he is and who allows it. And he never gives me more than I can bear. Job goes on, why? Why has this happened? I'd be asleep with the kings and the counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves or with the princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw the light? There the wicked cease from troubling and there the wary are at rest. That's not true. That's what he thinks. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and the great are there. And the servant is free from his master. Ah, the beauty of death, Job is musing over. Hmm. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death but it does not come, and search for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave? Why is light given to a man who, uh, whose way is hidden? and whom God has hedged in. That's the first time he's mentioned God's name. And that pricked his ears. Oh, you're bringing me into this. You're not just mumbling and complaining to the three guys sitting around with you or your wife or whoever else is present. You just brought me into this picture. For my sighing comes before I eat, and my groanings pour out like water. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me. That is very telling. This is something Job has feared his entire life. What if, what if, what if? And he's never dealt with it like we spoke of before. He's never come to a conclusion in his heart. He's never settled in his mind. If this was to happen, so be it. I will serve the Lord. 
As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I will not curse him. I will love him. I will praise him. I'm deciding that now before it happens. This is the thing I've feared the most, and it's come upon me, and what, a, what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. We have three adversaries, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The Bible describes them in different scriptures, and I don't want to go over those right now. Satan is allowed to attack from without. I have yet to have any Christian show me where the Bible says that Satan can get into our minds and tell us things. A believer. An unbeliever? Absolutely. I understand that. Demon possession, all those things happen. But for a believer, Satan comes from the outside. All he can do is bring bait. All he can do is touch the outer. He cannot do this. This is a struggle for Job because Job is struggling in his own head. He's struggling with his own flesh. Satan has touched his person, touched his health. Yes. He's hurt those all, all around him. He's taken away all of his wealth. Yes. But he's not in Job's head. This is coming from Job. And I know this because God responds to this and holds him accountable for what he's thinking, for what he's saying out loud, for the things that he's going through. I'm accountable. Why is this important? Because we, we deal with attacks on the wrong front. Sometimes we just think, well, this thought, this thought, it's from, it's from Satan. It's just a thought from Satan. No, no, it's you. And you need to deal with it accordingly. If I keep uh, praying against Satan for this thought that I have in my head, I'm not dealing with the real enemy. I'm dealing with a different enemy. And Satan's just going, yeah, whatever. I'm not even doing that. That's you. And you never can deal with the thought because you're not owning it. You're not saying, this is coming from me. This is coming from my own flesh. This is, this is my battle. And I need to let the Holy Spirit and his word minister to me and get this and take this thought captive and cast it out. That's my responsibility. If I blame everything on Satan, I'm not fighting the right fight. Now, he certainly is an attacker and a vicious enemy, and we need to fight him on that front also. I understand that. But when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, it was all external. Jesus had to deal with the fact that he was being brought in bait constantly. You don't have to die. You don't have to go down this. You don't have to be hungry. You don't have to do this the way God's planning it. You bow down to me, and I'll give you the world. You'd say to that stone and make it a loaf of bread. Then you won't be hungry anymore. All those things are... And Jesus had to say, no, I'm not going to obey you. I'm going to obey God. This is a flesh thing because he was fully God and fully man that he had to battle. And he battled it appropriately. We need to do that. Satan knew somehow that these are the things that Job feared greatly. And those are the things Satan attacked. Fear brings and invites attack. It does. It brings it in. It's a weak spot. Now, how did he know? Maybe he prays out loud. Maybe it was all the sacrifices he offered up to his kids all the time. Oh, they're having that party again. I don't know if they're going to be, I don't know if they're sitting against God or not. Oh, dear God, if my kids ever sinned, if it, oh, he loves his kids. You know? Satan knows and is watching and he hears us. And he pays attention to those weak spots. And so recognize those weak spots in your life and deal with them with God beforehand. Get ahead of him. Now, I'm not saying it can't happen and it's not going to happen, that he can't attack you. But what Job has allowed, which is fear, 
come into his life and he hasn't dealt with it and he hasn't put it, he hasn't, well, he hasn't handled it. Satan knew that's where I can attack. That's what I can come into and do. So what is your weak spot? What do you dread the most? What is your biggest fear? In 2020, there's a lot of people, you know, that had the biggest fear. A lot of different things, but there was a main one. And Satan knows that. He looks for that. He looks for those opportunities. And I prayed all last year, they said, that this wouldn't come upon me. Here it is. It's upon me. The thing I feared the most is here, settling upon me. Why, God? And they're going through this exact same thing that Job is. And so I want to encourage you. First of all, don't curse God. Walk through this fire. Walk through this trial. Walk through this test. Whatever is coming your way, whatever you're going through right now, please understand it's no accident that we're in Job right now. It's no accident that you're here listening to this or you're online watching this. It's no accident that God is bringing this up. He's warning us, be careful. I know what you're going through is hard. I know it's difficult, but I'm trying to prove a point here. Don't curse me. Don't walk away from me. Remember who I am. I love you and I care for you and there's an eternity. Keep that in mind as you're going through this. God is rooting for us. He doesn't have to step in and say, come on, Job, you can do this. You can make it. He's actually sitting back and letting Job say everything he wants to say. And he's listening to everything. And for for 20 chapters, he's going to listen to everything everybody says. And then he's finally going to say, okay, it's my turn. He's going to step in. I'm telling you, don't wait 20 weeks to read that last part of Job. Read it this week. Read it and then read the rest of Job in light of how God responds. Because I don't know that we have enough time. You know, I don't want everybody to have to wait for that. So what did God think of everything Job said? He's not happy with what Job said. Job never curses him. He never falls into it. He stays true. He keeps his integrity. But boy, does God have some things to say to him. In fact, spoiler alert, in the process, Job is covered with boils. Everybody's dead. He's lost all of his wealth. God looks at him. He says, Job, prepare yourself like a man for what I'm about to tell you. And lays into him in his condition, in his trial, in that time. He says, Job, you know better than that. He begins to rebuke Job in the middle of that difficulty. And that's just not, it's not how you think God would respond. So I encourage you to read that. God wants us to do well. He wants you to do well. He wants us to walk through trials and adversities with joy in the Lord. Not for what's happening or for the pain that you're suffering or for the loss, but knowing who he is, that in the darkest moments that this world has to offer us, my automatic and my go-to is God is good all the time. and All the time, God is good. And whatever I'm experiencing is not good, and that's not from him. That's from the enemy. And I accept that, and I understand that, and I am clinging to the Lord, and I love him. And I can't wait to be with him. And all this trial and all these tribulations only make me want to be with God more than I ever have before. It doesn't make me want to walk away from him. I just want to cling to him and get closer to him. I rely on him more than I ever have as the wind and waves approach, and I'm standing on rock. Boy, I'm thankful for this rock. 
Oh, I'm thankful for what God has done for me and for the light that he brings into my life and that I have something to hold on to. And that's where we close today. Let's pray. Lord, we do love you. I mean, there are so many in this world going through so much worse than we could ever imagine. But that isn't anything we can do. That's between you and them. For us, Lord, I mean, we're at the top of the 7.7 billion people on this earth. Honestly, Lord, we know that. We've got running water. That puts us ahead of 50%. And it goes up from there, Lord. We understand that. So forgive us if we ever think we deserve more or should expect less trial, less adversity. Help us to truly take up our cross and to understand what that means, to live for you and to die for you, to go through trials with you, to bring you glory in all that we do, good or bad coming our way, Lord, that we would always praise your name like Job said, like he did. I will praise the Lord. So we praise you this morning. In the midst of whatever we're going through, we praise you and we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us and the promises you've given us. That we spend forever with you, that we have an eternity, that you're preparing a place for us and that you're going to come and bring us to that place and we look forward to that. Help us to be good representatives of yours down here. To point people to you in good times and in bad times, but we'd always point people to you that they might have hope in their struggles and in their trials that we don't ever give the illusion that coming to Christ means no bad things happen, but that in bad things that happen to all men, we have someone to hold on to, we have an anchor, we have a hope. And that's the gospel. That's the good news, Lord. We have you. So Lord, bless us as we go today and help us to seek out those that are going through difficulties and trials and may not be doing well and to be good counselors in their lives to remind them of the goodness, your goodness, to remind them of who you are, what your character is, what you've demonstrated for us, so we don't have to guess that you have truly shown your love for us, and to strengthen them in this difficult time that they're going through, that they might cry out to you in praise and not in accusation. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you.